going back to that question about the similarities between Dragon Den and fundraising, it's about backing people very often and whether you really believe in, in, their, in their values and their ability. Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG six years ago, and we're a London-based strategy and management consultancy in the social impact space. What that means is that we specialize in philanthropy, corporate impact, and fundraising advice. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and it's part of our mission to help them better understand each other. And so you have what donors want. In each episode, we'll interview a different kind of major donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? We're going to give you this advice straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, and I'm a colleague of Carlos's from IG. I'm also the producer of What Donors Want, and I want to kick off this episode by giving a big shout out to all our listeners from around the world. From the UK, US, Canada, to Cambodia, Uruguay, Belgium, Turkey, Singapore, it's seriously awesome to know how far this is reaching, and we always love hearing from you. So now, on to our fourth episode. We spoke with philanthropist Nick Jenkins, founder of Moonpig.com and Dragon's Den Judge. I'm joined here by my colleague, Juliet Cochram Agnew, who's going to tell us a little more about today's guest. Thanks for having me, Rachel. I am super excited about today's guest, who is a dear friend of mine, Nick Jenkins. Moonpig was sold in 2011, but Nick Jenkins endowed the Nick Jenkins Foundation and has spent many years helping thousands of people as both an angel investor and a philanthropist. Should we give him a call? Let's do it. Welcome, Nick Jenkins, to What Donors Want. We're so thrilled to have you here, and thank you for taking the time. That's a pleasure. I'm here with my colleague, Juliette, and we are going to start with informal, fun, speed round, get-to-know-you questions, which are A, for fun, but B, to promote the idea that donors are people and they're humans with interests, and that if you want to build a great relationship, you should really get to know who they are as a three-dimensional person. So please say the first thing that comes to your mind, no matter how silly, um, and, and we'll see what happens. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, so question number one. If you could go back in time to any era for one day, which era would you choose? It would be um, Rome 100 AD. Very specific. I know, that is. <laughs> Very specific. You've thought of that. Yes. Good answer. Okay, question number two. If you could live in any country in the world for one month, where would you go? It would be Japan in February during the ski season. What is the most ridiculous thing that you've ever saw on Dragon's Den? It was a <clears throat> device that looked like a thimble with two rollers on it, and it was designed to improve the quality of paper folding. I wasn't aware, and the safety of paper folding. I wasn't aware that paper folding was a dangerous activity, uh, but apparently this guy thought it was. Amazing. <laughs> if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be? It would probably involve sushi. Mm, maybe in February in Japan. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> coffee or tea? I alternate. Sometimes I'm all coffee, sometimes I'm all tea. And I'm not prepared to sit on one side or another the fence on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a very important one, that one. It's true. It's oh. big donations at the IG office. Absolutely. <laughs> there is actually one bonus question that I wanted to run by you. I have heard a rumour that you have special language skills. Um, is there anything that you want to share with us about your special language skills, Nick? <laughs> Um, I I can speak uh, I can speak Russian in a variety of English regional accents. <laughs> that is 
one of the greatest things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> you give us an example of that, Nick. No pressure. Uh, okay, so so uh, think, of a, think, think of an English regional accent. You're better. Brummy? That's a good Brummy. one. Brummy, okay, okay. Your vast That's incredible. Oh my gosh, I am so I hope we have a Russian listener who can understand what you just said. <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put the challenge out there to any listener. Oh my god. interpret that. That was absolutely amazing. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Now moving into the more serious part of this conversation. So our part two will be a deep dive into um, your grant making at the Nick Jenkins Foundation and your work there, what you look for in a grantee relationship. So question number one, why did you decide to establish the Nick Jenkins Foundation? Well, because I, I uh, the business was doing quite well. Um, and at the time I said he didn't have any children. And I thought... Um, you know, I'd end up with a bit more money than I than I needed, and um, and it would be useful to do something with it. It, it was slightly motivated by falling off a cliff um, uh, when I was skiing, and I thought I'd broken my back. I hadn't actually; I just wounded myself. But um, but 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 I lay there for about three minutes, thinking this is very foolish. I've fallen off a cliff, and um, and I haven't decided what to do anything useful with all the money I've made. So when I got back from that trip, I set up the um, I set up the foundation. And, uh, and thought I'd spend a couple of weeks trying to work out how to solve all the problems. Um, and I'm still doing that 10 years later. It is really interesting. I think that um, your story about why you set up a foundation will probably resonate with a few people because it does tend to be some kind of challenging life event that makes people think about their values and, and why they want to give back. So it's, it's really interesting to hear about the personal side of, of your decision-making um, mm-hmm. for your philanthropy. On the question of who supports you in your decision-making, do you tend to make those decisions on your own or do you work with advisors or trustees or, or is it something that you work through primarily on your own? No, no, I, I have a, a lot of a lot of friends in the sector and um, so a lot, of it, a lot of it is spent discussing things with other people um, <clears throat> in a very informal way. But most, most importantly, and, and this is the really important aspect, is that I want to speak to people who have done this for a living for 20 or 30 years because it's all very well to set up your own business, make a bit of money, and then think, yay, I'm going to solve all the problems of the world. The reality is you probably know very little. I think that's a very wise answer. Yes. And quite an unusual one, actually, Nick, yeah. because I, I think that um, a lot of people that we come across actually don't necessarily um, take the time always to spend time with beneficiaries, time with charities, time with grantees to really understand the issues. And mm-hmm. I think it's an essential part of doing philanthropy really well. Absolutely. And, and going off of that, what do you focus on through your philanthropy? My, my focus has really been on um, how can I um, get the best bang for buck in terms of relieving human misery. And, and in particular, actually, um, a lot of the things that kill people are dealt with quite well because everyone wants to focus on saving lives. Whereas there are a few things that are debilitating and um, and make your life extremely unpleasant, <clears throat> but don't kill you. And those things are often neglected. I mean, we, we talk about neglected tropical diseases, but there's other things like um, obstetric fistula is the main one that, um, that I've supported, which is just a miserable condition and it's relatively easily sorted out. Yeah, it is absolutely awful. And I yeah. know we, we've spent a fair amount of time talking about that, Nick, um, between us in the past, and it is a really... I think it's very interesting that you focus on that area because it is a is a neglected area, but it's also a female reproductive area. So it's a little bit rare to find a, phil- a male philanthropist focusing on that issue so so ardently. Um, so we really admire you for doing that. And we're going to come back to that in, in a little bit, actually. Um, you mentioned that you it's it's quite clear that you take um, a, 
quite a uh, thoughtful, systematic approach to decision-making and how you select causes. Um, and as listeners know, you've been a dragon for the past two years on the popular BBC show, The Dragon's Den. Um, for listeners who haven't listened to the show, um, entrepreneurs get three minutes to pitch their business ideas to five potential investors or dragons who are willing to invest their own capital to kickstart the businesses, um, similar to Shark Tank in the US. Um, so my question is, how much of your dragon persona do you bring to your philanthropy when selecting causes or assessing the people that you want to work with philanthropically? <coughs> but, but I, I just tried to get to the nub of the issue, and, and that's the critical thing. And, and also trying to get to the honest truth minded because an awful lot of pictures that I see from charities are glossy. They're glossy. Uh, we're going to transform the lives of thousands of children. And they don't. And, and 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 of course, if you spend a lot of time researching this stuff, you realise that you know these problems are not simple. They're complicated. And they're, but I, I I want to deal with the truth. Um, I don't want to deal with. Um, I don't want to deal with platitudes. Or um, I don't need to make to be made to feel as though um, as though I'm transforming the lives of thousands of children. Um, you know, with my ten pounds. But the only thing that matters at the bottom of it is: is do I really feel as though I made a difference? It's definitely something we come across as well in terms of when we work with charities on their communications and their language, really urging them to be um, specific. Exactly. And, and, and be, but be be realistic. If you're dealing with people who care about this and have taken time to understand it, then then they will they can see through gloss. There's a lot of satisfaction, a lot of enjoyment to be had out of really digging deep and understanding what's actually happening. Um, and, uh, and and getting to the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, and the glossiness is quite hollow. No, and, and and the other thing, the other thing is accepting, acknowledging failure because because in our own business lives, we you know I, I invest in lots of businesses. I expect half of them to fail. That's just part and parcel of doing it. Uh, but in the charity world, failure is seems to be unacceptable. So what happens is that rather than um, when it comes to measuring impact, the the the, the importance impact. Measurement um, depends entirely on why you're measuring it. If you're measuring it to justify why someone has given you money, um, that's very different from measuring something to find out whether or not it works. Yeah, yeah. And and so it's the intention behind the impact measurement that matters. Um, you know, are we are we are we trying to measure this because we want to find out if it works, uh, and therefore if it doesn't work, we're not going to spend any more money on it, or are we, <clears throat> or are we trying to work out? take all the figures that we've got and try to mould them into something that looks palatable for, for someone who's already given money. Um, so um, so, so that those, those are the kind of things that I'm interested in. That is really interesting. And I think um, a, a kind of clear takeaway here is that, you know, charities and fundraisers wishing to engage, engage with sophisticated major donors need to understand that um, they should be putting forward people who um, are passionate about the issues, understand the issues, and are able to engage with donors um, in detail mm-hmm. about the issues that the, their particular interventions are looking to address, because those are the kinds of conversations that donors want to have, Absolutely. and that you know donors like you really want to understand and um, engage meaningfully and honestly about the impact that you can have, and also you know be open to the idea that it might not work and be honest about that. I think you're you're right that it's it's not very often that charities will admit um, failure, yeah. um, but I think sometimes that is not because they don't um, value risk-taking, it's that they're concerned that donors, and it's true that a yeah. lot of donors don't enable risk-taking. Yeah, and, and, and of course, there are plenty of donors who actually just want to be stroked. They just want to be told that they've had an enormous impact and they don't particularly have the time to delve into it. 
<clears throat> and, and then there are some there are some that that, uh, that want to focus on, on the detail. And I think actually, in all the discussions that I've ever had, I think I think donors who want to focus who, who want to really understand the issue are in the minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but 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 then that's down to the charity to understand who they're dealing with. Um, but I I would but when I give, I generally I'm generally not dealing with the I'm generally not dealing with a major donor um, fundraiser. I'm usually dealing with someone who's a who works in the program. Right. Yeah. And with these people in the program or with the charity's leadership or or with a major gifts officer, depending on the circumstance, do you have you noticed a big difference in the way that these people approach fundraising and partnerships with you versus the entrepreneurs pitching for startup investments on Dragon's Den? Um. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> Trying to, we're trying to understand whether there's anything that charities can learn. Yes. From I, well, the, the most, the most important, the most important thing I think is is understanding who you're speaking to and tailoring what you're saying to who you're speaking to. Because, because um, for me, I, 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 if ever I'm speaking to people about about giving money to any of the, the charities I'm involved in, um, it's not a question of of please will you give us money. Um, it's it's a question of I understand that you're you have decided. To, to give a certain amount of money to this particular area, and we're probably one of the best places that you could usefully deploy that. So it's a bit of a mutual, you know, it's, it's mutual assistance. It's um, uh, I, I, you know, as a donor, I need to give money away, and I want to give it away effectively. So, so if you come up with a solution that, that enables me to give my money away very effectively, uh, then you, you've helped me out. Not the other way around. Absolutely. I mean, knowing who your your audience is is it, it, an essential. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that that I, I I don't I don't give money as a favour to the person who's asking me for the money. I give the money to help the people at the other end, and they're blissfully unaware of who I am. So um, uh, so it's just a question of trying to trying to really think hard about who you're dealing with, and um, what they want to achieve. You know, you're always in sales. You're always trying to solve someone's problem. And the problem a donor has is they've got more money than they than they need. They want to do something useful with it, and they want to believe that it's made a difference. And you can solve that problem for them. That's really helpful. That quote that you just said, Nick, that um, you know you're always trying to help the donor solve a problem. Essentially, mm -hmm. I think that's really really helpful for charities to really focus on because um, they can sometimes um, be more focused on the problem that they have to solve rather than the problem that they want to help the donor to solve. Right, and that's a kind of fundamental difference. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I have a question just in terms of, we talked a little bit about risk and, and failure. Um, do you have a sense or, of um, where on a journey of social change you're interested in kind of seeking someone to fund? Is it that you're more interested in startups or is it, are you more interested in well-established organizations um, or are you, is it not about that? Is it, are you more open than that? Well, I, ideally, ideally I would like to be funding um, uh, better solutions to problems um, rather than throwing more money at the same solution. In the case of Operation Fistula, we're trying to find a better way of, um, of managing the surgical, the surgical process through from finding the potential patients all the way through to measuring the outcomes. Um, and and that, that's inevitably a slightly riskier area. And I think philanthropy is better at risk uh, taking. Um, you know, smart philanthropy ought to be about uh, taking risks and funding um, funding some of the, some new solutions to social problems, not all of which will work. So, you know, for example, um, 
if you have an HIV diagnostic kit that costs hundred dollars, uh, you could throw you could throw a million dollars at that uh, and, uh, and and fund ten thousand of them, or you could spend some money on trying to develop an HIV diagnostic kit that costs ten dollars. You know what's going to have the biggest impact in the in in, in the end. So that's why I you know I, I like innovation. I like problem solving, and and also it's, it's more in my nature. I prefer the early stage things. But but what I'm not interested in funding is yet another small charity that does the same thing. There, there are way there are way too many small charities, and a lot of them are subscale and ineffective uh, because they're because they're small. And and a lot of donors, I think, like funding small charities because they feel as though they're making a bigger difference. Um, they're not. They're making probably the same amount of difference to the to the beneficiaries. It's just that. Uh, they feel as though they're appreciated more. Right, yeah. Well, and, and that's all about that donor journey and how they prefer to be cultivated, whether it's through the big institution or whether it's with that grassroots leader that they can have that yeah. more, more intimate connection with. So, and, and moving towards that donor journey and, and your experience with that, with the cultivation, with being asked for money, with being stewarded once you've given the money, what is the most common mistake that fundraisers make when pitching for a grant from the Nick Jenkins Foundation or when engaging with you in general on that donor journey? Um, I, I, it, it's not doing enough research, which, of course, you know, I appreciate that there's, there's, a, there's a, only so much time that you can spend on, on researching uh, what, people, what people want. Um, the, the, the biggest mistake I've seen is, is when people just, again, give me the, the, usual, uh, the usual nice noises uh, about, what they, about what the charity does and they, and they don't really want to engage in um, in, a, in a proper discussion about about the work. You know, I've met a lot of major donor um, fundraisers who don't know very much about, about the subject matter because they flip from one charity to another right. and they're very good at schmoozing people but they don't really know very much about the subject matter. And, and actually, they often don't care about the subject matter as much as I do. Yeah, so there's partly an issue with who they're putting in front of you by the sounds of it. And yeah. also the issue with not having done adequate research. Um, and actually, on that point of research, I wanted to ask you a question about how you feel um, as a, a major donor and an, a, a donor in the UK about being researched and being profiled. Because um, I don't know if you know, there's a, there's a new um, sort of data regulation piece that's coming into effect in May. It's called GDPR, um, which will really heavily restrict the way charities are able to research donors and the kind of information that they can hold about donors um, with a view that they will need explicit consent from you or any other donor they're looking to cultivate before um, before they can actually hold information about you. And it's an interesting challenge because mm -hmm. on the one hand, it will protect you as a donor from having charities have hold data about you and profile you. But on the other hand, it might restrict their ability to actually do some of that research yeah. that might help them steward you better. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that at all because it's a challenging space. I, I have... I have no issue whatsoever with um, with anyone building up a profile of what I like to support because it filters out people who um, it ought to filter out people um, that I don't really want to speak to. So um, I don't really fund arts projects. Um, I'm quite focused on what I fund, and and if that meant that the people who were approaching me, um, if, if that meant that I could publicly put it out there that I'm just simply not interested in funding this 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 this, don't bother. Uh, that would be really helpful. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't understand. I don't understand why this has been uh, uh, introduced. Um, because, because otherwise, all it means is that people people will know that you're worth approaching, that you might be worth approaching, but you're just only getting approached more uh, you know, with with unfocused approaches. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's 
it's an interesting um, challenge that yeah. the, the sector is facing, and it's really interesting to hear your view on it, Nick, because this is the view that a lot of charities have been putting forward to the regulators, mm -hmm. that actually it's in the donor's interest for us to um, make intelligent approaches to them um, based on research. Um, but the GDPR regulation is, is exists to protect individuals yeah. who um, may or may not want their data being processed. Um, so, it, you know, there's there's an argument for both sides, and it, it, I, don't, I don't think we, there's no clear answers in the sector as yet, so it's, it's still very interesting to hear your view on it as well. Yeah. No, what, 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 is, what is interesting is how little I get approached. Um, apart from, apart from I, I, you know, inevitably, as a foundation, we get um, quite, quite a few requests each uh, each month, but but then I've publicly stated that I don't take unsolicited approaches because I just don't have the time to filter them, and um, uh, and I, I do you know I'll open them up and have a, and have a look at them uh, just because I'm curious to see what they're asking for. Uh, but I don't what I what I don't get I, I don't get approached by major fundraisers. You mean in terms of cold approaches, or you don't get connected to them often, or very. The last time I got approached by a major donor fundraiser was uh, two years ago. That's very interesting, and it brings me to the next question. If there was a fundraiser, or a charity rather, who wanted to approach you and the Nick Jenkins Foundation, but had no connection to you, or an, an obvious first-degree connection, how would you advise them to do that? Not specifically with you, but in general, sort of um, major philanthropists. Is that through... A cold outreach is that through being connected through a friend, more likely, or meeting them at an event, or how do you? What resonates best with you when connecting with new causes and new charities? If if someone has found out that I'm particularly interested in, in something and uh, they can offer something uh, more effective, then I, then I'd be interested in hearing from them. But I'm going to be, I have been quite narrow in what I'm in uh, what, what I've funded recently. And 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 the other thing is, it was all very proactive. I mean, I uh, with Operation Fistula, which is where I put quite a lot of money recently. Um, I found them. I was doing some research in the sector. And it's always a, it's always a, a, a better way to start is to start to work out what you actually want to fund, and then re research who the best organisations are, rather than waiting for them to come to you. Absolutely, and I think any organisation that researches the Nick Jenkins Foundation would come across the fact that you have been a big supporter of uh, reproductive rights um, in Africa, and also a supporter of African causes generally. Um, I wanted to ask you about Operation Fistula, actually. It's, it's obviously a hugely, what they do is a, is a hugely important area, um, and you've been a, a huge supporter of theirs. Um, and I wondered, what were the key things about Operation Fistula that really influenced you to make a decision to support them? And what could be interesting for charities to understand about, about that? Uh, I think that the most important thing was I met Seth Cochran, who is the founder of, of Operation Fistula, <clears throat> who is very, very bright. And here, you know, going back to that question about the similarities between Dragon's Den and fundraising, it's about backing people very often and whether you really believe in, in, their, in their values and their ability. And Seth had demonstrated a complete commitment to this uh, um, cause for seven years. He'd given up his career to, to do it. And, and also the way that he thought was very similar to, to my thought process about solving problems. Um, so I thought it would just be very interesting. It was a cause that I wanted to support. But I thought it would be quite an interesting journey to go on with him because uh, we uh, we were we were very much aligned in the way in our approach to things, our approach to problem solving, um, and it's 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 been fascinating. It's been a really it's been a really good journey. It was the fact that you were pitched this cause in a way that made you understand its impact on other 
um, systemic problems within the community. So if you, you know, if, if you provide fistula care for women, then that unlocks X, Y, and Z potential within the community, which then leads to something else. Would you say that it was that sort of strategic, bigger picture thinking that really tips your support in that direction? Or was it, was there an emotional human story behind it that made you just want to support that cause in isolation? I mean, I, I wasn't particularly, particularly emotional about it. It's just that I, I looked at, I'd looked at all the things, all the debilitating, um, uh, conditions that, that are often left untreated. I looked at how easily they can be treated. And, um, and I suppose it's a question of just efficiency. If you look at things in terms of disability adjusted life years, um, what's the lowest hanging fruit? And, and uh, operate the fistula is, is uh, top of the list. So uh, then it was a question of finding an organization that I thought was had, an, had, had something uh, new to add. And there were, there were probably you know, five or six seven organizations that raise money to do fistula surgery. Uh, what's slightly different about, about Operation Fistula, and this was partly as a result of a lot of discussion that I had with Seth, because it was still very, very embryonic when I got involved. Um, but we, we decided really early on, and I joined the board of it, and, and decided really early on that rather than being yet another organization that raised money to, to fund fistula surgery, um, that we would try to create something that would improve the quality of fistula surgery across all of those charities and all of those organizations that are trying to do it. So, um, so in the end, what we've ended up with is the um, is developing uh, GOFA, which is the, uh, the the global obstetric fistula and electronic register, which is um, which is basically a system that enables all of the organisations to track their patients from when they're identified all the way through to, to outcomes. And it's sort of about creating a, a gold standard of measurement um, for it. And once you've established that, you can then start channeling money through it um, because because you've got more, more accountability and you can see the the, the the results. But it was something that the, that the um, what we realised was that there was an awful lot of money going into fistula surgery, but not a lot of measurement of where it was going and 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 uh, and the outcomes. And that needed to be corrected first before we started throwing more money at the surgery itself. And I think it's I think it's safe to say that I also met Seth. I know Seth quite well, as you know, Nick. Um, I think there's also the, there's a good alignment in values and in entrepreneurial mindset mm -hmm. between Operation Fistula and how you how you like to fund it, and also how you how you tend to operate. So that that's that is something for fundraisers to be aware of and charities to be aware of, is mm -hmm. to think about the personality of the funder. Um, and what's what not only what's important to them in terms of impact, but in terms of the way they like to see change happen, and maybe the character of yeah. leadership is important in that as well. And, and and that that then informs who they put in front of you. Because I think the fact that you met met Seth early on obviously had a huge mm -hmm. influence on not only the fact that you're funding Operation Fistula, but but also the way you're thinking about addressing the issue now. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. So. The one final question we have for you is if there's one thing that you want a fundraiser listening to this podcast to take away from this conversation, what would it be? The most important thing is to understand that most major donors are people who have already decided to give their money away and that they, they're they looking for help to work out how best to do that. Uh, and so fundraising is simply about <clears throat> aligning people's interests. And if you help someone find a really effective way of using their money, um, then they're going to be very grateful. It's less about them doing you a favour. Uh, it's it's more about an alignment of interests. And, and when you, when your interests are aligned, it's amazing how easy fundraising becomes. That is hugely helpful, Nick. Thank you. I mean, so many nuggets. Oh my gosh, wisdom and insight in there. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. This is very very helpful and insightful, and it's wonderful to hear how you've 
taken your, your business approach and applied that to your philanthropy and made such an incredible difference. And I know fundraisers are going to learn a lot from this conversation. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Nick Jenkins for his generous time and advice. We also want to thank the fundraisers who sent us questions for Nick. And if listeners have any other questions for our next guest or want to find out more about IG, we'd love to hear from you. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors. And as you know by now, we can always be found at Mom with Coffee in Borough Market. Except for me, who's probably more likely to be in a yoga studio with green tea. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that sounds way better, so I may be with Jules. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. See you soon.